Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. It's the 13th of September, and we have a great show for you today. We'll start right away with an update from... Uh, Central Vermont uh, uh, about the power outage that struck Callis, East Montpelier, Worcester, and other towns yesterday at the hands of a pool and grain truck. Uh, then we head to the Mad River Valley to speak with author Mary Kathleen Mihuron about her new history of the valley. And what's a day in Vermont without an update on when fast Internet's going to be coming to many of us, including me, we'll answer all your questions with the executive director of CV Fiber Communications District, whose trucks and people are tromping through the woods at this very minute, stringing the fiber that will deliver the nirvana of fast Internet. Just imagine. And at 1030, we'll, we'll be talking about Rock City, Barry's one and only rock and soul chorus as part of the Barry Heritage Festival featuring Adam and the Orbits, all to benefit Barry's flood relief uh, efforts. All that, and we'll take your calls along the way. The number to call is 244-1777. You can email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Let's go right away to Lewis Porter, general manager of Washington Electric Co-op, provider of electricity to most of us in central Vermont for an update on the power outage from yesterday. Welcome, Lewis. Morning. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? My power went back on at 6 p.m. last night, so thank you for that. Yeah, it's uh, it's especially, uh, you know, our, our members uh, around Central Vermont are, are pretty patient with power outages and generally uh, take them in stride. But I think people are especially frustrated when there's an outage like this uh, that occurs when there's not really any weather happening. Tell, tell us what happened. Yeah, so about noon yesterday, a uh, grain truck making a delivery uh, made a mistake and left his the chute that delivers the grain up as he as he pulled out uh, of the farm and and caught one of our main power lines. Uh, we, we call it a transmission line because it delivers power uh, around our territory, uh, but it you know it's it to to the to the observer it looks like a like a normal power line, but it, but uh, caught that line. Uh, broke one pole, uh, pulled another pole over, and, and did a bunch of other damage. And uh, wow, that is really that is really unfortunate. What uh, when did what time did that happen, Lewis? Right after noon. It was about uh, between twelve and twelve thirty yesterday, and uh, and we got that repaired. The crews were on scene pretty much immediately and got that repaired uh, around five or six in, in, in the afternoon, got, got the rest of uh, people back on. And this affected, I think, uh, East Montpelier, Callis, um, uh, Worcester, any other town? Uh, some in Middlesex as well. Um, as, as I say, this is, this is a big line for us. This is a line that delivers power all the way up uh, County Road to Maple Corners and, and beyond. So it was, uh, it was about 1,500 members uh, who were affected. And uh, what did you have to do? Uh, I'm always fascinated by this, the, the actual work that it took to restore the power. What did you actually have to do to make that happen? 
Uh, these, these folks on the line crew are just incredible. I, I, to, just to be clear, I didn't do much. <laughs> like like usual in these situations, I didn't do much except uh, talk to members who were calling in and, and make sure the crews uh, had what they need. So they, they're, they're incredible. I mean, when you go up and take a look at this, at this uh, scene, it's pretty amazing. There's, there's a pole with the top third or more of it snapped off hanging from the wires there's wires down uh another pole tipped over the truck is still uh wrapped up in the wires um it's you know it's a mess when something like this happens and it's you know accidents happen and 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 we all work together to to get them fixed but you know it's a mess and and you looking at this you would think this is a this is a two-day project um you got to take the down the the broken pole uh, end of the broken pole, you've got to get the wires out, you've got to safely get the truck out from among the wires, you've got to put a new pole in, straighten the other pole. You know, you, you look at this and you think, this is this is going to be two days. And and these folks uh, have it all back on in four or five hours. To, to be clear, uh, we, we, we still have some additional work to do, it, you know, to, to finish the repairs there. When, when we have something like this, our, our first priority is getting power safely back on uh, to our members, and then we will go back and and clean up and and finish doing the work. That must, how's the driver of the truck doing? <laughs> was he was the power lines crashing down on him? Fortunately, he was fine, uh, and and very luckily he he was fine. Um, you know, our our system is set up so that when something like this happens. Uh, uh, devices trip off and, and power is very, very quickly uh, uh, removed from those lines. Um, the, the lines didn't actually come down on the truck. They just got entangled in the, in the, in the uh, chute that, that delivers grain uh, out the back of this truck. And, and so he, he, he was fine, uh, luckily, and, and all of our crews are, are, were able to do the repairs safely. So, so that's the, the most important thing. Um, but, uh, you know, funnily enough, this is the second uh, farm truck accident we've had this year. <laughs> in, in another case, a different, different place, different farm, uh, the, uh, somebody left the, the dump body up in a truck and, and caught, caught the lines. Uh, so this is, oh. this is our second one this summer, although this caused outage to a lot more, a lot more people. Okay, so nobody hurt, and uh, as I said, I think my power came on about 6.15 last night, so all is well. Uh, Lewis, on another issue uh, regarding flooding, is there any – what's going on at Washington Electric regarding you know, the aftermath of the flooding? Or is there anything you are still working on, any projects, or is everything all buttoned up and, and fined? Well, everything's back on uh, and got back on relatively quickly for us. We didn't have nearly the amount of damage uh, from this flooding event as we did in the in the December Christmas storm. Uh, that storm caused about a cost about a million dollars for restoration. Uh, this one was in the one to two hundred thousand dollar range. So, so much less damage to our system, and and in part that's just luck, and in part. You know, we. I always uh, complain. Your your listeners have heard me complain uh, probably about our rural territory and the the fact that we Washington Electric as a co-op came into this area uh, to fill in the gaps that weren't served by uh, by other utilities. And the consequence of that is we have a very rural territory, very few members, customers per mile. Uh, but in this case, with the flooding, so much of the damage was in downtowns. 
uh, and we don't serve any downtowns really because of the way our our territory developed and, and the history of the co-op coming into being. So. For, for once, our territory actually was an advantage for us in in the level of damage. Now we did have, you know, we did have quite a bit of damage. We did have quite a bit of outages and a number of outages. And the and the most challenging thing was getting to the places that needed to be repaired because there was so much road damage. But we in the in the flood we had relatively little damage. Um, we've also done something I, I think is pretty neat, which is we have a community loan fund. I mean, a community uh, grant fund that comes from members donating their capital credits, their profit share from the co-op. And uh, we quickly began giving out small grants, about $1,000 a piece, to area nonprofits that were affected by flooding. And so that was kind of very low bar to entry, very fast uh, money to those nonprofits that were affected by flooding. And, and we're, I think we've done about $15,000 in that so far. Oh, tremendous. And last question uh, you, you before this job, uh, you were the commissioner of Fish and Wildlife. You, you have a, a deep background in in the sort of uh, environmental impacts of this flood. Um, we're going to have a discussion about dams and their role uh, in in providing power, providing recreation, uh, fish uh, habitat, etc. Um, and I, there's a, a heck of a lot of dams on that Winooski River, and we had the VNRC folks on the show talking about dam removal. Uh, it strikes me that you, uh, if you're, if you don't have a major role to play, you certainly are an expert in all this. What, what do you see in terms of the public conversation that's about to happen about this? Well, I don't. I don't think that VNRC or, or other dam removal supporters, of which I'm one, uh, are intending to or targeting uh, dams that produce power. Uh, hydroelectric power is a very low carbon power. It's renewable power. It's it's often local power. And I think that, that the benefit of that kind of power uh, to our, our work against the impacts of climate change is, is recognized. Um, as for dams that don't serve a useful purpose, whether that's flood control or recreation or power generation, you know, I think there are many of those around the state. And I think, you know, VNRC and others are, are right to think about and look at those both for their impacts on the environment, but also the potential for some of those dams to actually pose a risk of some kind and to, and to look at taking them out. When I when I worked at Fish and Wildlife, we removed a couple of our own dams. The department owns a number of dams. We removed a couple of our own dams. We worked with others on dam removal. But but I don't think that uh, uh, dams that, that produce power or that have other important flood flood mitigation or recreational benefits are really on that list. But but the but, but the sort of uh, but the obsolete. You're right. The low hanging fruit. The sort of obsolete dams that are holding up the water and making flooding worse. Uh, I mean, we have to talk about how we're going to pay for that, but it sounds like there's a consensus about removing some of these dams. Yeah. Derelict dams that have, that are either at risk of, of, of failing and, and risking those downstream or, or just that have are backed up, are full of mud behind them, uh, don't have yeah. the potential to provide those benefits. You know, they they can, as you say, uh, pose a risk uh, beyond what would be happening naturally. It, of course, dam removal is a, a a major undertaking because you have to do it in a way that uh, is both 
safe for people and their property, but also environmentally uh, uh, responsible. And there's a lot of sediment and other things behind these dams in some cases that, that needs to be dealt with. Porter, the general manager of Washington Electric Co-op, as always, uh, thanks for coming on and giving us the latest on power outages and everything else power-wise. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks a lot. Okay. Lewis Porter, uh, always nice to have a general manager of an electric co-op that you can call on the telephone. Uh, we appreciate it. We're going to come back. We're going to take a break. And our next guest is from the Mad River Valley, and she needs to be careful because the guy at the soundboard, Big Titus, is also from the Valley, so he'll be listening very closely. Mary Kathleen Mihuron is the author of Take Me Back, uh, a anecdotal history of the Mad River Valley, and uh, she joins us now on the line. Uh, Mary Kathleen, I think you go by Kathy. Tell us what you would prefer. You can. It's an Irish thing. My parents did this to me. You either have to call me the whole Mary Kathleen or Kathy. Uh, people <laughs> tend to look at my name and call me Mary, and I honestly don't know who they're talking to. So, I apologize. Oh, gosh, that's so fun. Let's go with the Mary Kathleen. It sounds far more sophisticated for some reason. Well, it is my author <laughs> name, too, so it helps sell books. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, our, our pleasure. Uh, I've read the book. Uh, I've got it here. It's beautiful. Uh, why don't you t- – it's a, it's a long story about how you produced it, but why don't you tell us uh, exactly what it is? Sure. Um During the pandemic, um, my third and fourth novels were not being acquired. I had reached a point where they were going to the big five, to acquisition committees. But as I understand it anyway, books like How to Make Bread and children's books were selling, but novels were not selling. And so there was this huge backup. And at this point, I really have to write every day. So I thought... Oh, I'll go to Lisa at the Valerie Porter. We're friends. Maybe I can talk her into letting me try to put together a column, which I'd never done before. And it and she did. She allowed me the opportunity, and I thank her for it. And shout out to a local newspaper. We're so lucky to have a local newspaper in the Mad River Valley. But um, it was a struggle because local folks are not as I, I think are not as willing to share as my type of personality where, you know, I'm kind of an open book, my own husband would not be interviewed. And he's somebody who had, grew up here, you know, and, and the, the, uh, the articles were called Take Me Back, and it was to be stories of locals in their own words. That's, that's what I was trying to achieve. So there was that struggle going on. But then also um, the... Uh, the research itself was challenging. I thought our historical societies, based in Moortown, Waitsfield, and Warren, we each have one. So I thought oh, they'd, they'd just be chock full of opportunity, materials, volunteers. Especially I had it in my head, volunteers who were going to save me a lot of work. And when I ran into that, I, I got very serious because it seemed to me we were at a pivotal moment with our history that we need to raise awareness of and money for different organizations that want to preserve and showcase our history. 
So, you know, now I'm serious and I'm thinking, well, if I'm going to do anything here, I probably need some money to do it. And it, consulting with the best-selling author, James M. Tabor, who is also oh, yeah. a Waitsville resident, Jim has been my mentor in a number of projects. And I asked him if he would come on board as project mentor. At the very same time, uh, the Vermont Arts Council gave me a grant to get this thing off the ground. And with Jim, we, I began collecting stories that I thought would be entertaining. And, and that's what I really want the, the listeners to know is this book is not like a serious academic history. It is entertaining, and it has a lot of key folks who were part of um, how the Valley was shaped and changed from the time that Mad River Glen opened. So it was two years. I was writing the column at the same time I was writing the book, and we put it out at the end of June on the same day as my third novel, which is The Belonger. And I did that for a reason, because my publisher has a professional publicist for The Belonger, and I knew we could tag on some of that publicity to sell the Take Me Back book. And boy, it went fast. We're going to have to do a second printing. Oh, fantastic. Uh, it's a, what do you call I'm sorry, you're breaking up a little bit. Sorry, it's coffee table size. Tell us about what decisions went into that. It was, um, Jim Tabor is project mentor. My son, the director, Jonathan C. Hyde, he, he really is a Hollywood director. I'm not making that up. Um, and the graphic artist we selected, Marin Harakawa, we all wanted this to be a gift. Yes, you're giving us money. And by the way, 100% of the money goes into the nonprofit because our local business is paid for the printer. So it's, you know, 100%, you're giving us that $40 to put, you know, toward history projects, and we're giving you a gift, which is complete labor of love. I mean, we agonized over the, the quality of the papers, all the artists, and especially the photographers. I'm so grateful they donated their work. So it's their best. It, they hand-selected what they gave to us, and we were so honored to have it. It is beautiful, isn't it? Oh, oh yeah. And as someone who um, is old enough to remember Mascara Mountain, uh, it it's, was just fun taking a whole weekend just to go through it really slowly. But So let's talk about some anecdotes. Tell us about Mascara Mountain. I spent a lot of time... Um, researching how to, how to present it, because I wasn't there, right? I mean, I can talk to folks in town who are still with us, and they can talk about it. But, you know, there was more to it than just um, the Kennedys. You know, Ted Kennedy came here a lot before he broke his back. But apparently there was a, a special bus that met, like, near Lincoln Center with a lot of Kennedys and their friends, and they would come up. Um, they, I'm looking at the names. Um, if you're old enough to remember Oleg Cassini, he was a legendary yeah. fashion designer. And actress Kim Novak at the time was one of Hollywood's top box office stars. Um, Vincent Sardi, you know, still Sardi's is a famous restaurant in New York. So it was this really 
interesting crowd. And they began to actually buy things. I think Skitch Henderson had a discotheque here in addition to a house. And, and that was the scene. You go up on the mountain, it was glamour. It was, you know, the fancy ski outfits. We not only had Skitch's discotheque, but apparently there were many. And, of course, drinking and driving wasn't a, wasn't a problem back then. Let's put it that way. Right. So there were lots of clubs. Um, I would argue, and I think I do in the book argue, that it was a tale of two cities. There was the glamour and flash and all that up at Sugarbush. But local people at the very same time were losing their businesses, their family businesses, like mills. And the story I hear over and over again is how the state of Vermont changed how you could transport milk. So yeah. instead of having the cans, which everybody had for generations, they had to now invest in bulk and refrigeration. And many simply couldn't do it. And so they're losing their farms. Yes, they got work at Mad River Glen and Sugarbush and Glen Ellen, but it was seasonal. It was regular, but it was seasonal, and it, it was still dangerous, hard work. So, you know, you had two populations trying to figure this out at the same time. Yeah, that's right. Two, two populations, and, and you're right, a community, a, a dairy community in transition, uh, a transition that was going on all over Vermont. Yes. Yeah, yeah, the, 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 oh, yeah, the bulk tank and the way they transported milk, uh, that's right. Um, and, but... Uh, Mary Kathleen, some of those folks are still around, right? Did you enjoy talking to them? Oh, my gosh. In fact, the project has grown. You know, in the end, all for me, I'm putting my efforts into preserving stories in the end. And, and so, again, we're lucky enough to have our own newspaper. We also have our own television station. And so – the director approached me and said, why don't we do some recorded interviews? Because we can archive those for posterity. Yeah. And so That's at great. that point, I became obsessed with what I call the historic family. Mary Kathleen, uh, in some ways, the community is still in that transition, or and a lot of remote communities <laughs> yes. are. And that, that's a big a theme in the book. It is in the book, and once the television show started on Mad River Valley Television, um, my focus really became the what I call the historic families. Now, I, you know, make no mistake, I have the last name Mehuron, but I am an Irish Catholic Jersey girl. I married Tom Mehuron, who was the third generation who owned Mehuron's Market, and now our oldest son owns it, so he's the fourth generation. But I've been aware, um, I'm more interested in his family's history than he is, and I've become aware of how many families remained and the way they had to morph and change because when the farms started to go, people largely grew their own food. And when the farms were being lost, now you, you've got this big grocery bill and you need a job that can pay for that. And they got really creative. For example, I didn't know that the Jameson family, who owned the farm before Von Trapp's up on the Common Road, I didn't know that for generations they had um, sold insurance. And so after the farm was lost and they moved into town, they 
they went whole hog with insurance, and that business exists today. But yes, I was with uh, Fred Messer doing an outdoor shoot for the TV show about Civil War veterans, and I believe he's the eighth generation in his farmhouse. So there are more of the original historic families around than you think. Right, and uh, and and I, it leads me to the following question. It's jumping ahead a little bit, but how is the valley now economically, culturally, socially, educationally? Would you say that it is stronger than it used to be, or less so, or more so? What what is the status of the valley? And you know, I, I was preparing some notes. And I looked at that question yesterday, and I wrote, oh, wow, you got the wrong girl. (laughs) Again, I only showed up here in 1986. I I know more about the history because I've been researching for two years. Um, So I can tell you what it's like in the last 40 years. I mean, I think what's most concerning my family is that change is going to happen for the sake of housing. And I would say all of us, every member, I have three sons and my husband, are concerned that that change doesn't happen too quickly because we're going to live with those big buildings for a long time. And um, we certainly want – my oldest son is very committed to honoring the original farms – that, you know, his argument is that we should at least mark them to remember the families. Right. Um, so that's what we're working on now is to take the money we raised. And, and that, that I'm so grateful to everybody who bought a book. And we're taking that money and exploring what history projects we can do that will be meaningful. Well, uh, let's get to that because this is not your average uh, book launch this is uh, was born of a newspaper column and a desire uh, and COVID and a desire to support the history of the valley and area nonprofits. So, and there's a TV piece to it. Uh, you went out and met with uh, pretty much everyone in the valley uh, seeking support. So, talk about the sort of uh, integrated marketing of of the book and how and and how not just. Book. It's got lots of other. Yes, the book was a launch point. I, as I say, I launched it on the same day as my third novel because I knew people would pay attention. And um, Sean and Karen Lawson threw a beautiful bash for us, and we sold a lot of books that day, and also raised awareness of and money for. It's, the organization is to raise awareness of and money for people and organizations that want to showcase and preserve our history. And so every product we use as a fundraiser, I'm committed that that product should do the same. So you're going to be reading it at home and looking at these beautiful photographs, many you've never seen before, because they came from the young artists, younger artists. Um, and the book will teach you a lot about history and Raise the, it's a true story. It's raising the issue, what do we do now? How do we organize ourselves? Because historic societies are dying. We don't have one in Faceton anymore. We don't have one in Warren. And Moortown and Waitsfield, you can find online, there's a couple individuals who are struggling to keep everything safe. You know, I don't know if everybody is aware, we have over 800 glass plate negatives 
That means that the photographer painted the emulsion on, and one of those big old-fashioned cameras took pictures of the valley. Well, those are fragile artifacts. We have to figure out a way to preserve them. Um, now, I'm, I'm losing my way because I'm on the soapbox. That's okay. <laughs> what else well, did that's, you want to know? We, we are your soapbox. I, uh, another question. You are a Mihiron, as you, as you like to say, as, and as my wife, wife likes to say, you are a married in. And a recent <laughs> arrival in the 1980s, um, I, can you talk more about writing this? I love the anecdote about your husband refusing to be interviewed. Can you talk <laughs> about doing the book as a Mihiran married in? Yes. I mean, all three of my sons, by the way, have thanked me for doing it because they know that I, I may be, you know, the Irish Catholic Jersey girl, but I am also the mother of Thomas Mihiran III. Right. And I do this for them, you know, and all the other younger people. One day, they don't realize, you know, younger people, I didn't realize at their age how important this would be to me one day. And they will look at these products. Right now, for example, um, I don't know if you know Kevin Irish. He wrote, he worked for the phone company for years, Waitsfield Telecom, and he wrote a lot of things for them, the history inserts. He worked on the books they produced on their anniversary events. He's a really good writer. And, you know, I think I've convinced him that he is worth preserving as his stories. He wrote a book for his family, which I would like to take some of our foundation money here and hire a designer and an editor, and really make a nice package. So here's another product that raises awareness of and money for. But his is really history because his family has lived here for many generations, and he has all kinds of research materials that the average person wouldn't be able to access. It's that kind well, of thing. That's where I'm headed. Okay. Uh, we're going to do, we have to take one more break and then we'll come back and talk more about uh, your book and where, where people can get it and where it goes from here. Our guest is Mary Kathleen Mishuron. She's a married in from New Jersey. The way, where in New Jersey? I'm from Bergen County. My grandfather was a police officer in Englewood, right across the uh, George Washington Bridge. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm from the Jersey Shore down in Sandy Hook. So we, uh, we share. We, we, we share something. Mary Kathleen, I wonder in this last segment if you could um, uh, make us all very happy with a, a story from the book that especially stood out for you or, or a oh, character. That stood out for me. Um, I, yes, I, I actually don't have to think about it very long. Uh, I'm a big fan of Augusta Graves, um, who is Gussie Graves who founded Graves Realty. And we're family friends. I think that's why she was one of the first to agree to be interviewed. Because remember, in the beginning, it was very hard for people to put themselves out there in the spotlight. But what strikes me about her so much is she went to work like many children in the Valley had to. You know, a lot of kids didn't graduate from high school because they couldn't be spared from the farm. It's just that simple. And many right. had jobs. And when uh, Mad River Glen opened, 
Gussie, you know, she screwed up her courage, and she knocked on doors, and she got a job. Now, they didn't know she wasn't yet 14. I don't even think she realized that the law was that she wasn't allowed to work till she was 14. So here she went, this little girl, and she would volunteer. Like, she started a cleaning business just because she overheard somebody say, can, you know, is there any way around who can clean my second home? You know, the whole idea of having a second home was foreign to her. But she said, oh, we can do it. And she just created a business. And, and that's kind of how it went. She's very smart. Um, but she, she really couldn't attend classes during high school. She would get <laughs> packets from her teacher. So she'd be studying at night. You know, just picture that. And then working so hard all day. And then they realized she wasn't 14. So, you know, she couldn't even get a Social Security card. But eventually, she wound up with very successful businesses. She was a key part of developing the land around GMVS. GMVS was actually her farm, and her grandparents' farmhouse still is there. It's it's tiny. It's used as kind of a storage building. Um, But all the land around it, she and her husband and her brother and his wife developed those houses and she had the real estate company because she could sell them, right? So bit by bit, she just built this gorgeous life. And she really does have a beautiful life. And I'm so proud of her. Right. right. And GMVS being the, the, racing, uh, the racing school that is in the valley. Green Mountain Valley School, yes. Yeah. Which is it, a whole it, other story. That is also in the book. Oh yeah, I mean the 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 combination of farmers and ski people, both both from here and from not from here, and early hippies, uh, Prickly Mountain, Dave Sellers. Uh, is there another story that jumps out at you? Well, Charlie Brown, the king of the ski bums, is right, is right. still with us, and he, in fact, he was just interviewed on on TV the other day. Um, that story's so interesting because he came from a family that was into the Mad Men kind of advertising. He had an in in that way and um, had a really good job. And this is early. Like the early 70s was a pretty big wave of ski bums. But Charlie came in 65. And he was more like a, a beatnik, I would say. You know, it was pre-hippies. Right. Um, Prickly Mountain, they came in 65, too. I consider that a really pivotal year because the culture, you know, that would, I'm sure it was a shock. Everybody's swimming naked in the river and smoking pot and all this kind of thing. And you've got all these uh, very staid, you know, a, a classic Native Vermonters pretty, plays pretty close to the vest, right? Right, right. So, yeah, that was an important year in 1965. Well, okay, so Mary Kathleen, um, this project of yours is going to go on and grow in its efforts to raise money for local nonprofits. Can you talk more about where you go from here? The book is out. It's it's available. What else are you doing? Well, first, I'm making a plea to anybody who lives in Faston, Moortown, Waitfield, and Warren to reach out and begin to revitalize our historic societies. Um, as I said, you can find Moortown and Waitsfield online, 
there are a couple very dedicated people that would really like to pass the baton because they're getting older, but there's no one to, to fill that spot. And Faston and, Moore, and um, Warren, you can call the town clerk and begin that discussion. There's stuff, right? There's photographs. There's artifacts. But I got to be honest. I mean, some things are getting lost because there's nobody to really care for them. So it's an right. it's an important moment that we take action. And, I, and as I say, the awareness in my mind is even more important than the money. Um, I'm considering. I'm talking, taking meetings with the chamber. Um, with uh, different planning commission people, trying to get a sense of, you know, what is the most important thing to start with? Uh, and what, I, here's my pet project that I'm, I'm actually building a prototype for, is to start with Bridge Street in Waitsfield, simply because I know a lot about the Mihiron family and the old Mihirons. What is now the Artisans Gallery was the original Mihirons. And uh, I think it'd be really cool to work with high school students to design and create interactive, like a, a, a walking tour that's interactive. So you'd be standing, for example, in front of the old Mihurans, and you could hold your cell phone up to this cool little marker that we will build. And you have a short film that tells you the story in their own words, from letters and from, you know, photographs and we have we had Aunt Ruth. My husband's Aunt Ruth was a family historian, so I have stories in her words that we can use to create. And I think it's it's great for the kids because then when they get excited about history, they may be the next generation that becomes a member of the historical societies. Where can uh, people get the book, and where can people find out more about the project? Okay, we're. I do think you can you can call me at home. I'm in the book. Uh, I have one box left, right? It's sold pretty quickly. Um, and you can probably still get a copy at Tempest Books, the Artisan's Gallery. Um, Addison West has been doing a great job selling them. And I think there's a few at the collection as well. And what we're doing now is planning a second print run and um, the beautiful summer scene that's on the book now, I think we're going to trade that out for a beautiful winter scene in preparation for the holidays and gift giving. Okay, I have to just, before we go, uh, say it's awfully refreshing to uh, have a guest on that says uh, on the air, you can call me, I'm in the book. What, what <laughs> book are you How talking quaint. about? How quaint, but it's true. In fact, I'll tell you my phone number. It's 496-2296. Call, and, and, and um, I can, I've done deliveries to a lot of folks, especially elderly people that are dying to see folks they know in this book and read the stories, and I, I'm happy to deliver until we, we run out. And we can't go without saying that I, I got you on the phone to ask you to be a guest on this show, I believe, when you were on a hike uh, and you pulled out your cell phone and said, I can't talk to you. I'm hiking. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I was well, a little out of breath. I didn't think it'd be a great conversation. Well, Mary Kathleen Mihuron, uh, you're kind to join us, and we'll have you on again uh, whenever you want to talk about the book and the project. It's, uh, it's called Take Me Back. It's an anecdotal history of the Mad River Valley. It's fabulous. So, uh, 
you can you can Google Mary Kathleen. You can find her number. She's in the book. So again, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll talk again. Okay. Mary Kathleen Mihiran. It's Kevin Ellis, and uh, it's uh, Vermont Viewpoint, and you're listening to WDEV.